ask you, if you will, to take a Bible and turn almost to the end of the New Testament, to 1 Peter chapter 3. For those that may be with us for the first time, we uh, did a series of sermons from 1 Peter up until about six weeks ago, and now I'm going to return where we left off, which is the end of chapter 3. Before I read the passage, let me remind you that uh, this is a one of two uh, letters, epistles, that Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus, uh, wrote. Uh, he was the informal leader of the disciples. He denied Christ on the night of his arrest. You remember that Jesus later restored him to ministry, and he became uh, a leader in the early church. He preached on Pentecost, a Jewish holiday, and there were some 3,000 people that were converted. He uh, ministered for many years. He, he died a martyr's death, from best we know. And he is writing this letter to, to believers who are suffering. Now, at this time, best we know, government persecution was just beginning. And so the suffering he's referring to is not so much outward persecution that would lead to their deaths. That would come soon. Uh, but it's suffering from... We've seen in the first three chapters uh, bad government, uh, bad masters, bad marriage partners. He's dealt with all of those. We, we took several sermons and, and went through some of those specifics. But now we come to verse 17, which kind of summarizes it. It is better to suffer, I'm in chapter 3, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Sometimes it is God's will that we suffer for doing what is right. Now, that's hard to grasp, and that runs very counter to what we in the American church have been taught in many cases by the health and wealth prosperity movement. But we need help in understanding this, so let me lead us in prayer, and then we will read verses 18 and following. Fathers, we come to your word now. We ask for your Holy Spirit, to, to open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law, as the psalmist prayed. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear God's word beginning in verse 18 through verse 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Peter is preparing you and me to suffer for doing what is right. And he wants to arm you, he wants to arm us with faith with faith to suffer for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. Now, to many of us, this whole concept sounds foreign. Uh, and it only takes a little bit of reading in church history 
to know that it wasn't foreign and it is, has been the reality in most of the world. For most of history and most of the world, being a Christian has never been safe. One of the books I have on, on the history of Christian missions is a paperback, though a, a thick paperback, by Stephen Neal. And he says, and he writes in that book, that in the first three centuries, when the church was spreading like wildfire, quote, every Christian knew that sooner or later he might have to testify to his faith at the cost of his life. That was part of the invitation to believe, come and die. Now, if you've kept up with what's happening over the past three months in the Middle East, this becomes more realistic because 2014, especially in Iraq, has been catastrophic. And the most wrenching stories have come from Iraq where the Islamic State or ISIL has savagely persecuted ancient Christian communities, including Assyrians, Chaldeans, and Syrian Orthodox. Now, it's true that since the first Gulf War in 1991, that Iraqi Christian communities have declined rather rapidly. But the survivors loved their country and believed that they could maintain a foothold where around Mosul, which has been so much in the news, or was earlier. But this past summer, all that hope collapsed. And many writers now, Christian magazines like Christianity Today, predict that we are just a short time away from the end of any Christian witness in Iraq for the first time in history. There have been Christians in Mosul for 2,000 years. Now, also, if you study the history of missions in the Christian movement, often when it looks like, like in Cambodia, uh, when the Khmer Rouge came in and best we knew murdered or at least others ran, there were no Christians left. Uh, but then years later, it found out there was an underground church in gestation, you might say, and it came back stronger. So anytime there's a statement like the end of Christianity in Iraq is within sight, 50 years from now, that story might be very, very different. But here's my point, back to the, the letter of Peter. Imagine doing evangelism in a context where you could not make any promises to the people who were hearing you that life would get better for them on earth. In fact, you would say, if you believe this, if you believe this about Jesus, if you trust in him, you are only going to be risking your life. So how do we deal with that? How do we, when you and I, according to the will of God, suffer for doing what is right? And with us, most of us, it will not be uh, the threat of our life but it will come in other forms, the loss of a job, the loss of relationships, being stigmatized as a student for a comment that you make. That's what he says beginning in verse 18. And the first thing he wants you to do when you suffer like that is to remember that Christ suffered. For Christ also suffered once for sins, and he suffered as no one else did. I don't mean that, that no one else has suffered a brutal death, but when you look at the full scope, the totality of his person, he suffered in his soul, he suffered mentally. 
He lived his entire life with the shadow of the cross. Now, I don't know about you, but when I've got something planned that I dread, it affects every day leading up to it. We all know we'll die, but I doubt if any of us would want to know the specifics, especially if it's going to be hard or when. Christ knew the specifics from the time he was young, and he lived with that under the shadow of that cross all of those years. He suffered in his body at the crucifixion, the scourging, the Roman beating, <coughs> the crown of thorns, and then the, the gruesomeness of the crucifixion itself. We have lawsuits in America with capital punishment and constant debate about cruel and inhumane. The cross was intended to be cruel and inhumane. That was a whole plan behind it. He separated, he was separated and suffered spiritually from the Father. The Son being separated from the Father and the Holy Spirit. So he's, he experienced death in the fullest sense of the word. Now we prepare ourselves for suffering for doing what is right by remembering that Jesus suffered. That's the first part of what Peter is saying. Think about that. Remember that he also suffered and if he suffered, why should we think that we will not suffer for doing what is right? But it gives us the purpose, and I'll say more about this later. He did this to bring you to God. The effect of Jesus' suffering and his sacrificial death is to enable us to enter into God's presence. So payment was made. The second point he mentions now at the end of verse 18 and beginning of 19 is that victory is declared. Now, verse 19, according to most Bible teachers through the years, including Martin Luther, who was no slouch when it came to theology, is maybe the most difficult passage in the entire New Testament. So if a moment ago you were paying attention and you heard me read, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water and you went, huh? Maybe I ought to read it again and see if it sounds differently. I can promise you, you can read it ten times and it was not, it's not going to sound differently at all. So here's a, a good principle with Bible interpretation. When we come to the scriptures, the main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. Now, I'm not saying that to be lazy intellectually or, or to develop an unwillingness to think and to study, but I think we need always to guard ourselves against a preoccupation with obscurity or ambiguity, and this verse is ambiguous. As I mentioned, many New Testament teachers call this the most difficult passage in the entire New Testament. But there is a time and a place for immersing ourselves in textual difficulties and scrutinizing every word and trying to arrive at a proper interpretation. But this is, it may be the place, but this isn't the time. Not right now. Though if you'd like to do that, I would be glad to meet with you at any other time and to show you all my notes, the pages that I have on this.
passage, but let me do a little bit of delving into it just so you'll kind of know what's out there. What in the world does it mean when it says he preached to spirits in prison? Now, if you consult ten commentaries on this, you will find ten different explanations. But there are three classic interpretations. First, it means, according to the first interpretation, that Jesus descended into hell and he preached to the spirits of those who had died in the flood of Noah. That's the first interpretation. Second interpretation is that Jesus did this preaching through Noah, in the days of Noah. That as Noah preached there in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and so forth, that it was really Jesus preaching through him, urging people to repent and to enter the ark and to escape the judgment. That comes from 1 Peter 1.11. Third, this is where I lean, is that Jesus descended, descended into the depths of the earth, into Hades, into hell, and he preaches to the spirits in prison who are the fallen angels rather than human beings. And the purpose of his preaching is to proclaim to these fallen angels his victory, his triumph, and their inability to stop the ultimate purpose of God. Now, I hold to that not only because R.C. Sproul does, which is reason enough for me, but also there are lots of parallel passages in the New Testament that seem to point in that direction. And so when you say, what is this prison? I mean, it, it, it could be a, a number of things. But it's worthy of examination, but I don't want to spend any more time on that right now. I want to get to the main point of the passage. But I do want to tell you, there are passages in the Bible, if you read them like this, and you say, well, I don't understand it. Well, there are ambiguous things there in the Bible, and God ultimately knows the answer, but it's not been clear enough here for someone like me. But I am Reformed enough, and I have a high enough scripture view of Scripture to know that everything about God cannot fit into my system, into my theological system. And sometimes when I think all the clues line up, I'm wrong. And I'm reminded of a story Steve Brown said about the man who got up one morning, and he said, today is my day. I can feel it in my bones. Something great is going to happen. And so he looked out the window of his house at the thermometer that was outside, and it registered 33 degrees. He went downstairs. He looked at the clock. It had stopped in the night on the hour of 3. It was the third month. It was the third day of the month, and he thought, threes, threes. That's it. He got out his newspaper, and he looked at the racing form, and there was a horse scheduled to run, and the name of the horse was Trio, running in the third race. So he ran down to the bank, got out of his life savings, got all of it out, placed it on the horse Trio, and the horse came in third. <laughs> now, there are times that my systematic theology looks like that, everything lines up, and all the clues, and then I... But the point, the point regardless of the specific application or interpretation, is that Jesus is victorious over Satan. And there is no place, no place where that victory is not complete. So, so we remember the suffering of Christ and the payment made. We remember the victory that's been declared. And last of all, we see the salvation that's provided. 
And so we come and he mentioned you, as I read it earlier, about, about the ark. He's going to, Peter, when I say he, he's going to show that we are saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, and it, he's going to use two illustrations. One is Noah's ark and the second one is baptism. First, the ark. When God flooded the earth, it was because of the ark that Noah and his family were, quote, brought safely through the water, through water. And Peter is highlighting, he's highlighting the symbolic significance of that flood for the believer here today. The flood waters in Noah's day, they were the waters of death that God had sent, and they sent people to a watery grave. But these same waters that came down and came up from the earth, the same waters that came in judgment also lifted the ark and were the means of the saving of the people that were in it. Now, all of these people, Noah's family and all the others, were subject to the rains and the flooding, the same water. We will all face the judgment of God, every one of us, according to the Scripture. Whether you believe it or not, the Bible says we will all face the judgment of God. In that day, for those eight people that were part of Noah's family, judgment fell, but it fell not on them. What did it fall on? The ark. And they were safe because they were in the ark. The ark carried them through the judgment. The Bible says we will all face punishment, judgment for our sins, but we can be carried through that judgment, not in the ark, but in Christ. He is our ark. He takes our punishment for us. Those eight in Noah's day were saved by being in the ark. We are saved today by being in Christ. If we trust in Christ, the judgment will buoy us up. But if not, if we reject him, that judgment will bring us down. So it all depended on whether you were in the ark or outside the ark. It all depends on whether you're in Christ or outside of Christ. Then verse 21, the second illustration is baptism. And he says it corresponds to the ark. As the flood separated Noah and his family from the wicked world of their day, so baptism now separates believers from the evil world of our day. Baptism, in that respect, is the counterpart of the flood. There was the flood, here's baptism. How does baptism save when it says that in verse 21? Peter quickly says, I'm not talking about the removal of, I'm not talking about the water itself like what we did earlier with Isabel. He's saying not the removal of dirt from the flesh. He's not talking about the act of baptism like that. He's talking about what it symbolizes. Now, you need to understand this because this is perhaps the key issue that, that draws a distinction between Roman Catholicism and, and Reformed Protestants. If you're from a Roman Catholic background, uh, the re and I'm not misrepresenting this, the Roman Catholic Church in the past and in the present teaches that the sacrament of baptism works regeneration in the souls of those who receive the sacrament. And that is known as baptismal regeneration. But Reformed Protestants have always rejected that baptism automatically regenerates a person. And we've argued that people who are baptized may indeed not be saved 
Just because you receive baptism doesn't make you a believer. And so it's a mistake to assume that baptism indicates salvation. But we do hold baptism very highly as important because it's a sign of God's promise for all who believe. It symbolizes our regeneration. But it does not automatically convey regeneration. Some will say they refuse to believe in a God who would destroy people in a great flood. Men, women, and children. And I ask, would you believe in a God who did so but patiently gave warning for perhaps over a hundred years before he did so? It took Noah, the scriptures tells us, maybe as many as 120 years, but at least a hundred years to build the ark. It's a huge job. No power tools, approximately 450 feet long, 70 feet wide, 45 feet high. But the ark itself became a warning to people to escape the coming judgment of God. God was patient. He did not announce judgment one day, like on Monday, and then send judgment on Tuesday. Week after week, year after year, decade after decade, Noah worked and preached, worked and preached. Every day he preached, preached, preached. He was giving plenty of time for people to repent and to take refuge in the ark. If you're not a believer here today, if you're, if you're not, every day of your life is an evidence of the patience of God. He's given you another day. He's given you breath. He's given your heart to beat. And it's his patient that exposes you to the teachings of forgiveness about Christ. So come, we come not through the ark, but through the merits of Christ, through his righteousness. But if you've chosen not to believe, if you say, I'm just, I don't want anything to do with that, then you're like those in verse 20, the, those who did not obey. You're watching the building of the ark, and it's declaring judgment, and it's being built not just in one place, but with Christ all around the world, every tribe and nation and kindred and tongue. And that is a sign of God's patience, that he is warning you, but he is giving an offer, an invitation, day after day after day. But that patience will not wait forever. And today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. And so realize there will come a day when the warnings will stop and the judgment will come. That's what Peter's talking about. I'm out of time. Let me jump to the very end. Three applications. When you suffer for doing what is right, remember the crucifixion. Remember the crucifixion. When you suffer by fearing death, remember the resurrection. And get into the ark of Jesus. I've mentioned here before, though it's been a few years, that when British archaeologist Howard Carter found the tomb of King Tutankhamun in 1922, the tomb essentially was intact, and it contained some of the best examples of Egyptian art. And among that was the mummified body of King Tut. But what many people don't realize, it was inside of three coffins. And the outer two were made of wood. But the innermost coffin was made of gold, solid gold. A few years ago when Michael Jackson was buried, he was put in a solid bronze custom casket plated in 14 karat gold. Reportedly cost over $25,000. Listen, when you die, here's what you ought to be in. You want to be in Jesus Christ. Jesus. 
The state of your body at that point in time is not so important. But the condition of your soul, the location of your soul is of a supreme importance. Say, how do I, how do I believe? The Bible's pretty simple and direct. Romans 10 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your patience. We are testimonies of that patience. We are testimonies of your mercy and love and your provisions. We ask that each of us personally would would have faith in Christ and be in the ark, uh, that we would be in him. And we pray in his name. Amen.